0: Hello, I'm Katie Piper and welcome to my podcast, Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. Each episode, I'll meet an amazing person with an incredible story who faced adversity and came through the other side to inspire others. Today, I'm joined by a body confidence coach, award-winning body positive activist and author. It is Michelle Ellman. Now, I was going to start by saying I'm joined by an old friend today, but I'm not because this is like the second time I've met her and probably the first time I've properly met her. But that is what uh, social media does for you. Um, And not just social media, but when you relate to somebody that you've never met and you read up on them and they help you with your own thought process, it does become um, like an old friend. So that is probably an answer to why she is so successful and also has a book out, because I guess I'm not the only person that feels like her old friend. Uh, Michelle,
1: welcome. Thank you. I mean, and that's <laughs> such an honour because that's essentially what you are to me. I, I really, actually remember it. It was like in sixth form. And at the, that point, I was actually grappling with talking about my scars for the first time. And I just right. saw you on TV. I didn't even know your name. And I literally just saw you on TV and I was like, if she can be on TV. I could have a conversation with my friends about my scars. That's so it was, cool. it's so it's such an honour to no, that's like mutual. <laughs> Maybe I should actually let you introduce yourself
0: and and tell people who haven't heard of you who are listening um, who you are and what you stand for.
1: So I've had 15 surgeries from a brain tumor, a punctured intestine, an obstructed bowel, a cyst in my brain, and a condition called hydrocephalus. And I had those 15 surgeries before the age of 20. They started when I was one years old. Um, and well, all Can through- I ask? What was it? Something you were born with? Was it genetic? Or it's a really it's. I hate saying it's just bad luck but it is just bad luck and so much of it was unconnected to each other that it Mm -hmm. was just one thing after another with me. Um, There was some conversation around the fact that my mum didn't know she was pregnant until a lot later. Um, But... Essentially, it was bad luck. Um, and so it started with a cyst in my brain and then it How was... How old were you then when it started? One years old. and then, So it's, it's a lifetime? Yeah, essentially. Yeah. I don't remember a time without me having scars, without me being in hospital. Um, and actually, my first memory is in hospital of me trying to paint with my left hand because my right hand had um, an IV drip in it. And I was yeah. trying to paint a card for my year one teacher. So to say like... Hospital was my norm, mm-hmm. is pretty much the best way to sum it up. Um, and all through my childhood, I was just really insecure about my scars. And it was only when I was 21 that I had worked really hard on my confidence from the age of 15. And it pretty much started with me just accepting my scars were ugly, but that I couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. Um, and actually removing the potential of plastic surgery, because wow. I always had that as a temporary <laughs> thing in the back of my head. So Um, plastic surgery to try and remove the scars, to conform or... And it, like I didn't even look into it that much. It was just more so um, the idea started when I was ten years old, and I had worn a bikini for the first time. Right. My friends saw my scars, and it, it was met with like looks of pity, shock, and horror. And then I started getting really obsessed with trying um, scar reduction creams, not realizing it wouldn't work on <laughs> yeah. surgery scars. Like, and that's
0: hard when you're young because your expectation is raised. And, and I think
1: that's the funny thing because it's such a it's almost a funny story that I was trying to use scar reduction creams on mm-hmm. surgery scars, but that's the combination of childlike mind not understanding what's going on Mm -hmm. and then also dealing with a very adult situation. Yeah. So I had a conversation with my dad at the time and he said look well if we can talk about it when you're 15 but you're way too young to get plastic surgery because that's what I started. I had googled it and I was like I want to get it done. Yeah because it Um, felt like
0: a solution and relief. Yeah
1: and it was also I just never wanted to be looked at in that way again and it was so until that point, I was like, the solution is never talk about it. Hide it. Don't show my scars to anyone. Where and are they on your body then? To- so across my stomach, mm-hmm. half my head is bald. Right. Um, and I have a few on my chest. So mm-hmm. apart from like the ones on my chest, you can't really see it unless I'm um, undressed. And that's when when I was like 15, I started thinking about boys. And then I was like, mm-hmm. OK, this isn't a permanent solution. Yeah, I'm going to have to start talking about it. Um, Controversial question then. Yeah. Right. Because this is like,
0: so if I was talking like from my charity hat on and trying to be neutral, I would say both are as difficult. But living with scars on your face and living with scars on your body. Right. For me, as someone on my face, I think it's sometimes harder when they're hidden. Because for me, it was very hard in the beginning and I had no choice to hide them. I would have loved to have been able to hide them, but I couldn't. So I had to put myself out there really early on. And everyone knew who knew me, I had them. Whereas I feel if they'd been hidden, I wouldn't have dealt with it. I would have hidden them for a long time. And if I went to have an intimate relationship, I think I would have like just collapsed in terms of recovery and it would have
1: all gone wrong. Well, that's essentially what happened with me. And I don't know which is harder, but I know that... Each thing comes with different struggles. And I actually, it was the moment I was interviewing someone who had scars on her face. Mm. And I said to her, oh, well, I'm lucky because I get to pick and choose when I have the conversation. And she said, no, I'm lucky because I had my confidence in place. before it happened, you had it when you were one years old. And it's why it's like there's no point to really compare yeah. it. But it does bring up a unique conversation when you can hide it for so long because yeah. I hid it until I was 18 years old. and Ugh, That's tough. Especially when I went into hospital first year of primary school and first year of secondary school. So I never even had to have a conversation about it because it was almost like I would go into hospital and then all the rumours would go around the school. Mm-hmm. And by the time I came back, everyone knew. So I didn't have to have the conversation. Um, and so... How it ended up happening, I actually talk about this in my book. It's the first time I ever t- talked about it. But how it came out at university was actually a game, a drunk game of truth or dare. And I was drunk enough to forget about my scars. Oh, wow. And that was some good drink. <laughs> what were you drinking? <laughs> I was, need some. It was freshers week. Right, OK. <laughs> um, and a guy had asked me as a dare to take off my top for a round. And like, mm-hmm. I was in my bra. Yeah. But I completely forgot about my scars and I just took my top off and... um that's the first moment I had to explain to my brand new uni friends that I had scars on my stomach. And as soon as I did it, he was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Like, you can put it back on. Right, um, okay. And I was in a room of 20 people, all of these people, my brand new friends. And it was this thing that I had obsessed about from 15 to 18. How do I like I don't want to I even told my parents I didn't want to go to university because I just didn't want to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it was happening on the fourth day of university. <laughs> surrounded by all these new friends and it just turned into a really normal relaxed conversation and there were some medics in the room like medical students okay and so it was the first time I was asked about medical details around it so informative questions not voyeuristic and it wasn't like it wasn't done in a like inspirational way it was Mm -hmm. just in a factual way and it just became normal. And the best part about it was five minutes later, the room went back to doing what it was like playing a drinking game. And yeah. it was so normal. And it was that friendship group that allowed me to have the conversations. And that whole first year of university was me like talking about memories from 10 years ago because it was the first time I was almost allowed to talk about this it. This is why you talk so much <laughs> because you're making up for all that time. Yeah. Like, it must have literally been like such a relief to be... It was like pouring out of me. And every time anyone would mention anything, whether it be like... Dogs. I'd be like, oh, there were hospital, like there were dogs in hospital, and yeah. they're, that they're the reason I'm able to walk today. And I genu- I say that all the time. Like the hospital dogs are the reason I got out of bed. Um, but any inane conversation mm. was t- like was brought back to hospital just because it was like the first time I was allowed permission to share, to share yeah. it. Yeah. Do you think then
0: um, that's interesting that your circle? allowed you to be you do you think confidence is very much then about your circle
1: I think in school it was a lot about me trying to fit in and so university was the first friendship group where I didn't have to try to fit in because I automatically belonged Um, and Brene Brown talks about that where she was like in order for you to belong you actually have to stop trying to fit in yeah that's Um, so true and it was some really unique friendship group where like we none of us would have been friends in school there were some Mm -hmm. like really cool kids some really nerdy kids but we all just accepted each other for how we were and I Mm -hmm. understand and that's not the majority of people's uni experience. But to this day, I credit that uni experience as the reason why I'm so confident and so accepting of myself because mm-hmm. I was so accepted in that friendship group. And then what did you go on to do after uni? Where did you go to uni? So I went to uni in Bristol. I did a right. degree in psychology. I graduated from there. But in the last year of psychology, my psychology degree, I got PTSD. Right. And then the second year, I went into hospitals. So. so what? what do you know what triggered the PTSD? I think it was actually the second year going into hospital and then I raced back to university. I didn't allow myself enough recovery time. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was me mentally feeling safe for the first time that right. I was in the right, friendship group I was in the right space in my life that I was like my brain almost went okay now's the time to deal with it because you never felt I never felt safe in school um and for the first time I felt safe especially after I came back from university because all my friends like looked after me I was Mm -hmm. I would be in a club holding my like (laughs) stitches and they would like sit me in the corner of the room and someone would always be like watching over me and um It was a lecture that I was I was sitting in a lecture about how physical health affects mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, And they said the words that when you're a psychologist and you walk into the room, most clients will respond saying, why me? And it was that first (coughs) thing that just went like I said that so many times in hospital. Mm -hmm. And it just like you it felt like someone had like punched me in the heart. Um, And then they said, and the other, the biggest obstacle you will face is I'm not crazy, and that's another thing that I said when a, the first psychologist walked into my room. Right, and it was kind of like I saw this rolodex of memories, like these pictures in my head that I hadn't thought about in over a decade. So, do you think it's emotions and, and
0: scenarios you hadn't processed and you'd repressed
1: them? And a hundred percent, because I never got, I never felt angry around them, I never felt sad around them, and to mm-hmm. have, um all of those emotions in one go and not being able to disentangle any of them, mm-hmm. I just started crying and I cried for nearly three months. And did you cry in that lecture there and then? Yeah, and yeah. I the, the lecturer saw my eye, but I was um, <laughs> caught in a bench so I couldn't get out. Oh my goodness, um, that's quite <laughs> distressing as well, like Especially when know. trauma is not being able to escape mm-hmm. and so I literally couldn't escape mm-hmm. in that um, lecture hall. Uh, so that's kind of what started it and then I went into therapy but therapy talking therapy wasn't working for me mm-hmm. when it came to PTSD and that's when I was just about to graduate it was like I've always wanted to be a psychologist I'd wanted to be a psychologist since I was 11 years old and because I, of your own experience yeah, or, yeah and a volunteer I'd met in hospital who oh, right. um, when I was 11 who had described her job and I was like there was a sentence everyone said to me when I was in hospital, which was everything happens for a reason. And so my child, like mine, was like, I need to find a reason. Okay. And I latched onto. Do you like that saying or do you? I hate it. You hate it. Tell, I, tell me why
0: you hate it. Do you like it? Um, I just think it's a load of bollocks. Like yeah. it, it sounds nice for like a, a quote, a positive quote, but you know we're the we're in the driving seat of our own life. Mm-hmm. So it's not that things just happen for a reason, or wouldn't that turn out nice? Like we navigate that, you know. But also
1: you find the reason, and the reason is always in hindsight. Whereas at the time, you're telling an 11 year old everything happens for a reason, mm. and my first a uh, thing that went into my head was I was a bad person. That's exactly. Happened. That's the danger of it, that it's yeah.
0: punishment, that you did something wrong, that God hates you or in a past life. or It's guilty.
1: I remember actually thinking, like, was the reason I was mean to my brother or that <laughs> I hadn't drank enough milk or, like, mm-hmm. eaten enough spinach? Like, I, I thought I was the reason. And that's why I just don't think you should ever say that to someone because mm-hmm. especially someone who's so young and doesn't really understand the context of that saying. Yeah. Um, and so my reason was that I was going to save everyone and help everyone and become a psychologist. Right. And, then, and that's a big thing to carry on your shoulders, isn't it? To be everybody's yeah. kind of saviour
0: and, you know, and, and to go and study and do that at such a young age and, and feel like that's my purpose because I was born sick.
1: Well, it's survivor's guilt. So, like, Mm -hmm. I was in a a hospital. The period when I was in hospital when I was 11 was probably the longest period. It was three months in intensive care ward. And the intensive care ward is the most extreme. And because it's kids, it's Mm -hmm. even more dangerous. Um, So I was watching people die on a daily basis. And even if I wasn't watching it, I could hear the sounds. Yeah. Um, And you could hear the parents wailing in the background. And every time anyone died, you'd be like, but why am I surviving? So you had this, like, really confused, big like confusion of like why me like Uh this can't happen to me and then also being like you should be grateful like you made it out there are so many other people who didn't and you carry this guilt and not being able to understand it because of your age Uh and you kind of want to like make your life count for all the lives that were lost, Mm -hmm. which no human can ever do. And you carry all that on your shoulders and they're tiny young
0: shoulders with no life experience. Exactly.
1: And no one should have to earn their right to life. But it becomes that mentality of Mm -hmm. like, I have to earn the fact that I survived and no one else did. And psychology and therapy was the way I was going to do that, except it didn't really happen because... Therapy didn't talking therapy didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Were your parents supportive? Were they a big part of your journey? I think the problem was I never spoke to them. So right. they didn't know how much was going on in my head. And from the outside, I'm very good at smiling and like yeah. pretending I'm OK. And so they thought I was OK until, actually until my book came out, and well, that's
0: often the case though. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I would get call I literally got a call every day from my mum being like, You never told me about that. Why didn't you tell me about that? I'm gonna call the school. That's not okay. <laughs> and I was like, Mum, I've been out of school for like six years. I you think can't. they've lost those records now, Mum. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they've gone paperless. Calm down. Exactly. And I'm like, you can't do anything now. I'm really sorry. I should have told you at the time. But yeah. you for you to talk to your parents, you need to be able to say the words out loud, and I didn't want to say the words out loud. No. Um and so I was left in the situation of like, OK, well, talking therapy didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. And so I can't be a therapist. And I was still crying every day. Um, and I found uh, a, a type of technique called havening. And that's what led... Havening. Havening. I've never heard of that. And it's specific for trauma. And I walked in, it was an hour and 10 minute session and I walked out and I stopped crying. Like all my PTSD symptoms from that day have gone. What do they do? Tell me. It's a type of hypnotherapy. And um, it basically is the belief that trauma happens when you get trapped and you don't feel safe. And what happens in talking therapy is you actually strengthen the neurology behind it because you're replaying the memories. Mm -hmm. And so... Because your unconscious doesn't know the difference between real and imagined. So if I talked about biting into a lemon, Mm -hmm. your body would automatically react to that. That's what's happening in talking therapy is your brain's reacting to as if the trauma was happening here right now as you're imagining it in your brain. Reliving. Yeah. And so what this does is interrupt the neurological patterns by doing like ridiculous things like singing happy birthday and moving your eyes from left to right, which creates data (laughs) delta waves. I'm not sure behind the science of it, Mm -hmm. but... It interrupts the pattern. So when your brain goes. Uh, through that neurological loop, it's blocked from doing that. Right, okay. Um, it makes sense when you explain it, yeah. Yeah, and so that's why I was like, whatever this is, whatever you're trained in, I want to get trained in and that's how I became a life coach. And so for the next year, I trained as a life coach um, and I got five board accredited. Wow. And then... I, I love started... this. I love the way you just drop that in like <laughs> that as well. I started a business and I was like, I'm not really sure because that's the only way you could be a life coach back then. No one yeah. was hiring I life mean, coaches. and we're talking like
0: 90s millennial kind of like there was no internet internet in terms of like
1: well a bit older so (laughs) it was like how old are you though I thought you were 26 yeah I was gonna say I thought you were young yeah I'm I'm young and I was a young life coach as well um but I think it was it was this opening of my mind to there were other ways to help people and there are other modes of therapy that aren't widely recognized and probably a lot of scientists would be like oh well there's this floor and that floor. But ultimately, as a person who went through it, I don't care why it worked. I care that it did work.
0: Yeah, it's the outcome that you yeah. had. Yeah, and the, and also anyone that's had PTSD will know to be free of PTSD is a phenomenal feeling because yeah. it actually just suffocates your entire existence, you know, you don't...
1: And so much of the physical symptoms block you from actually processing them emotional. So the fact I was crying all day every day meant I actually couldn't sit with any of the emotions because my eyes physically hurting from crying that long was the thing I was dealing with, all the hallucinations, all the flashbacks. And I was like, I just want to be able to sit with the anger or sit with the sadness without Mm. having all the like almost most extreme of the symptoms that were making it harder to do that. And so even though it got rid of all my symptoms in terms of the practical like, hallucinations, flashbacks and the crying. Yeah. But I still had a lot to sort through after that. And I did do that via talking therapy, but I needed to like get past all of the physical stuff that was so Can you truly ever be free of PTSD completely? I believe I'm fully recovered. And I use okay. that word. And I believe it's really important and empowering in order to give people that option. And I think the reason why I had such a um mind block when it came to talking therapy was the first thing that psychologist said is you have PTSD, you're going to have this for the rest of the, your life and there is no cure. That seems a bit like doomsday, doesn't it? Especially when that's yeah. Why the have first. have treatment, you know? Yeah. And it's the first. Well, she said, um, I'm going to help you to manage it, but you can't get rid of it. Right. Um, and to be honest, as a very stubborn person, I just went. Nope, I was happy a month ago. That I'm probably gonna go.
0: motivated you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wonder, do you have any anxiety? Say, so like, for me, I was diagnosed with PTSD and I did have treatment and it was successful and I was free for a long, long time. And then something happened in my private life um, recently, end of last year, that actually re-traumatised me and I'm now having treatment again. Yeah. So, in a way, it kind of made me quite depressed of, oh, it's back is this my life now for I'll have a good few years, then something will happen. And, You know, I I don't have the answer at the moment. So I, it's funny because I feel like I'm in the
1: middle of that right now. Right. Okay. Um, I actually spent the morning crying, but it's fine. (laughs) It wasn't about coming here. No, it it was about like uh, something reopened in me like last week, and it's fine. And but I see it as two separate things. So I see it as I had PTSD, I recovered from it, (coughs) and some I will always have those wounds inside of me, and they will sometimes be triggered. But that doesn't necessarily mean I go back to the hallucination or the flashbacks. But I will have a deeper wounding because I've had complex PTSD in the right. past. And so what's most empowering for me is I believe it as a separate event. So mm-hmm. that's in my past. I've recovered from that. Here's a new thing that has been brought up for me to heal. And it's it hurts and I have to feel it. But I have the skills to feel it now because I've been in therapy for five years. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't scare me in the same way that it used to. a lot of when i was first diagnosed with ptsd is i was worried i was going to lose me and mm-hmm. now i realize there is no me like me is not a stagnant right. thing that I, and i wouldn't want to go back to the previous me because every wound that opens up when it heals i do become a stronger version of myself and so i see them as separate events so if my wound ever opened up again which it has last week if i recover if i like go through that and go through the pain of it um it would be a separate thing to what happened three years ago, five years ago, because you're able to do that now because
0: you've got yeah those, you've got that experience, those coping skills. and
1: yeah, yeah. and that's why I preach about therapy all the time because I do believe it's more maintenance than yeah. anything else. And I still go to a therapist even if my life is amazing and nothing is wrong because it means I have the skills in a time like this where yeah. I'm like, I can I can still live my life and that's something I never thought I'd be able
0: to do So you do a lot of positive work I mean for me where I mainly follow you is Instagram and the one uh, like the way I noticed you in the first place was it was a bikini picture and it was showing all your scars and I think it was no makeup as well yeah. and it was just like it was you, there was no editing it didn't look fuzzy or wonky or anything like that <laughs> And I remember thinking like when Instagram first happened, it was very much in the beginning all about like no pores on people's skin, yeah, like fuzzy complexions, dog ears, and like yeah. all kinds of like just edited filtered stuff. And I remember thinking like, God, I'm kind of the only one on here who's like crepey skin, scarred, wrinkly, disfigured. And slowly I I actually realized, no, I'm not. That's not true. I'm just not following the right accounts. And I saw you and I was like, wicked. She's done that. And actually majority of your comments and followers are really positive. She's not getting like trolled.
1: Maybe you do get some trolling. I don't know. Honestly, it's next to nothing, which is just, it's also the size. Like I'm only at hundred. I don't say that in a negative way, but at 150,000, it is still wholly positive. Yeah. If I got to a million, it might bring in more negativity, but it is amazing how positive it manages to be. The reason why I started posting these like makeup free and like honest bikini pictures actually that's how the account started was i posted one bikini picture the first time i was ever wearing a bikini at 21 years old and it was because i saw this body positive conversation growing and it was so frustrating that a movement all about everybody is beautiful didn't include my body and didn't include anyone with scars um so i had launched this campaign scar not scared which now is my username but at the time wasn't um and that's what it was this first bikini picture, and it's—I kind of joke about it because I'm like, you never know how different your body is until you go viral for a bikini picture. Yeah, <laughs> That's so true, yeah. Because no one else would go You're viral kind of naive for naive and simpl- innocent, yeah. yeah. And it was just a caption saying, like, a belief that I had, which was people with scars can't wear bikinis, mm-hmm. um, referring back to that time when I was ten years old and I wore it for the first time. Um, and it was the fact that I'd been confident in my body for maybe three years, but the bikini was still the thing that. And the reason I didn't wear a bikini was I used to say I don't want to make other people uncomfortable. And it was the first time I totally understand. I've had these feelings myself. Yeah. But it's the first time I was like, why are their feelings more important than mine? Mm -hmm. What if I just want to feel water on my stomach while I'm swimming? Like that is important in itself. That's a life that's your life. It's your experiences. Exactly. And it's funny because the first time I wore a bikini, not that many people stared. And I remember getting in the pool being really confused, and one of my friends was in the pool and I was like I'm just a bit shocked that, like... It's not the same reaction I remembered. And and he turned to me and went, Michelle, you're not seven years old anymore. Like when you were seven years old, can you imagine seeing a seven-year-old with the same scars on the stomach? You would look at a seven-year-old with Mm -hmm. pity. Um, Whereas you're older now, so people don't pity you. No one cares, (laughs) basically. (laughs) Pretty much, no one cares. It was so liberating. I was like, no one cares. And so I say a lot on my page, like let them stare. And also I have fun with it because it's really fun to stare back. Yeah, Um, Or sometimes I just look down at my stomach as if I've not seen them before like your shop too yeah. what happened
0: there oh my yeah, god I remember exactly. that happened to me I went into a shop it was like a newsagent in South London and I was rushing probably buying I think again breathments for fish breath um, <laughs> I started this interview with salmon Breath to put that in context um, and I ran in and I said just this please and I had cash to pay I wanted to get in get out and the woman went oh, what's happened to your face and I was like oh, I don't know Is there blood on it <laughs> and she was like uh, no 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 and then just like quickly processed the payment because I I was generally thinking like, oh my God, have I cut my head open or something? Because I was at that time living a life where I accepted I was burnt and I'd forgotten I was burnt Mm. until she had that interaction with me. I remember for me when I first started dating before I got married, and um, my confidence was really good because I was just like, well, some will like me, some won't. I like yeah. me, it's okay. And then I was almost like too confident. Well, I'd date guys and then like I thought it would all been okay. And then it was an issue of how I looked or if I had a surgery. And then I was like, what's the problem? What's wrong? And I kind of forget that actually there's other girls out there who don't have all this. And yeah. that, and that's the kind of comparison. And it was weird. like. I don't know. I suppose for me, maybe I was almost too confident. I remember going yeah. on a date with one guy. It was like two dates in. And he was like, Oh, you know, like you're, um, you've got such a great body. Like if you could do something about your face, like it, it would change it for oh you. My gosh. And I was like, Oh, see, so, yeah,
1: I get the opposite. I, You've got a great face. Yeah, <laughs> you can change your body. But, but then this guy
0: proceeded to give me advice on Botox. Oh Be- my bearing God. in mind, I think this guy was like, I don't. He worked in like an office in like Putney. So I don't know how much yeah. Botox he was giving out in Putney, but and I was just like, oh no, it's not really like that. I can't have Botox to change my face. It won't change anything. I don't really need Botox. But yeah. thanks anyway. And it was like this kind of naivety of like um, everyone will just like
1: me because I'm a nice, fun person. Yeah. <laughs> Dealing with dating, especially because that's the reason I started talking about my scars yeah. around it, was so difficult, especially around um, my when I went into hospital second year of university and I was dating a guy at the time. And it, it reminded me because of what you said around hospitals. Yeah. They might be OK with the scars, but then once you go into hospital, mm-hmm. suddenly they disappear. People drop off. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it changed that um, experience with that guy really changed my mind around it was I was like, my biggest insecurity was around appearance around scars. But if they can't deal with scars, how the hell are they going to deal with it when I'm actually in hospital and Uh I need you by my bedside? Yeah. Um, And so I kind of, one of my guy friends said to me, he was was like, your scars are a filtering system for all the assholes in the world. It's so true, honestly. Yeah, and that's the thing of a facial scar is it's straight, you won't even get like the first
0: number exchange. No, you won't won't get the
1: superficial people. Uh, You won't get the people who like will basically what he said was they all have to find out the hard way and you find out really early on yeah it's true it's a good idiot filter yeah I mean on Instagram
0: you do a lot of um like you said it's not all about your scars there's lots of different things that you cover and you talk about and I wanted to talk to you about this body positivity movement because in in the first instance I remember thinking this is great and then it gets like hijacked by people and you're like don't jump on that you're on everything else like don't ruin this and then it's also this thing of you should love yourself you should have body positivity hold on lots of people are just aiming for neutral feelings I I definitely don't love my face every day of my life and that's naturally not even my goal you know there's times when I hate my face and I don't think that's a failure
1: I think there's a lot of confusion around body positivity and body confidence so even if so body positivity is believing that all bodies are deserving of respect Mm -hmm. body confidence is being confident in your own body so even if you're not confident in your appearance today doesn't mean you're not body positive mm-hmm. um and they're two separate things you could be body confident without being body positive you could be body positive without being body confident um and i think the thing we need to remember is that it's okay to be human you're allowed to feel all of those emotions and Pretending they don't exist doesn't help anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the thing that frustrates me with the love yourself conversation is there are too many people telling you to love yourself and not enough people telling you how Mm -hmm. um, and actually giving you tools. And I hope my page is a place where I actually give practical advice around how to do that.
0: Yeah, well yeah, I mean yours is yours is actually a resource and it's consistent in your messaging because sometimes you can see people giving out advice but not actually practicing it or yeah. taking it on board or not being consistent in their in their own kind of feelings and their own output.
1: I always say your body is your most permanent excuse. Yeah, because, that's so true. Oh my god, I've got yeah. to plagiarize this. Yeah. Because <laughs> you can't get rid of it. And so like yeah. if you say, Oh, well, I can't go for that job interview until I lose ten pounds, here's a six months excuse you you can now use because yeah. you're like, Oh, it's my body's fault And I'm like Or were you just scared for that job interview? And you're hiding behind that. Yeah, that's so true. Exactly. Because we all do that. We do like, I'll live my dream life after I've lost the 10 pounds. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, but why don't you actually face the fear around living your dream life now? Mm -hmm. But using that as an excuse is literally just wasting time. And I'm sure you have this as well, like going through all of our medical experiences. Yeah. yeah. You have this like emotional part of you which realises how short life is. Yeah, because you faced
0: your mortality at such a young age. Like, you, you know, when we were, at school well it's even different for you because you were never free of it at school but when I was at school I used to draw my future of like a dog a cat a son a house a white yeah. fence I'll have a baby a boy and a girl and I'll get married <laughs> and then you know for
1: me it was my 20s where so I was like shit no it could yeah. be over everything you know and for me like I actually died when I was 11 so like my flat my heart flatlined and I had the feeling of floating up above my body and when I came back, I Actually, it went the opposite way. I often say I didn't get a second chance at life. I got like a fifth <laughs> because... You're a cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You would think that happens and you just make the most of life. But yeah. actually what it made me do was become very scared of life. Yes, very anxious yeah. and fearful. And... and everything was an ob- was something that could lead me back to a hospital bed. Because so... everything
0: feels fragile. Yeah, yeah. and you yeah. feel fragile.
1: Yeah. Um, And it was actually when I was hospitalised when I was 19 that reversed that and made me realise all I've done my entire life, because I was second year of university, is study. And what if I died tomorrow? Then all I would have done is study. And I had these lists of things. And I used to be a very active child. I used to go horse riding, ice skating, rollerblading, literally every sport. I've pretty much done it. (laughs) And I stopped all of them because what if I hit my head and fell? Yeah.
0: Um, And this is classic PTSD. A hundred percent.
1: And I lived with that for literally a decade from 11 to 21. Um, and so I called it my YOLO summer and I did everything that scared me from like cliff jumping. Oh, to, oh you're making me feel sick. <laughs> I hated it. I still hate it. Roller yeah. coasters. I did it. I did that thing of like, I'll do it twice. I'll do it once to get yeah. over the fear and once to try to enjoy it. I didn't enjoy any of it, but I did it. Um, and it was smaller things like going to a dance class. Like I never went to a dance class because I like feared looking stupid and being trapped in a dance class. Yeah. Because as much as I talk about like Uh, trauma is trapping you I genuinely had the same feeling from a dance class because I thought it was rude to leave like so I was I never went because I was like what if I want to leave halfway through um and so, and I was worried about being the fat girl in dance class and looking stupid. So I did all the small things as well. And right. that's where I realised my body was so much more than its beauty. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that respect for yeah. what it
0: can do, yeah.
1: And that's why fitness and exercise is something I talk about so much because actually living in your body and feeling your body as it moves mm-hmm. was the first time I was like, my body has a greater purpose mm-hmm. than looking beautiful. Yeah. And I might never look beautiful. And frankly, at one point in your life, you're going to lose that title anyway because like all of us yeah, are yeah yeah because like older women are not part of the beauty ideal yeah, so yeah you're going to lose it one way or another it was this moment of feeling my body and feeling how strong it is and how powerful it is and flipping the whole thing of i thought my body was against me and realizing i was like my body's actually trying to do everything to and keep me alive and you end up
0: feeling grateful because yeah. you start to think actually you came out of a coma you came back from this yeah i should i should maybe kind of like chip in here and help a bit too yeah. you know you do such feel like that and valuing it more and like you
1: should probably not be so mean to something that's literally keeping you alive all day every day
0: now it was all this life experience that you talk about that I guess led you to write your book yeah Um, it's called I am am I ugly yeah um and have seen so many people talking about it people that I follow you know um I've seen it in the press um it's been quite a bible for a lot of people I'd say
1: well i i kept it as a memoir because i didn't want to i didn't want to go down the advice route because i think advice especially around body positivity is so shallow mm-hmm. um whereas i was like i just want to show you how many um slips and like mistakes went like happened along the way in terms of like i would finally feel confident so at 15, I finally felt confident around my weight. And then I was like, at 18, I was like, oh, wait, I have to deal with scars. I mm-hmm. haven't dealt with scars yet. Oh, wait, now I have to talk to my boyfriend for the first time about my scars and how I had that conversation. And I like slipped it out. Right. But like as we were walking home, because I didn't know how to say it. So. Oh, my God. Was it like silent?
0: <laughs> and you were like, so, do you know, I've got these like, God, how did it go? It's even
1: worse. So he, I, so we're walking home like it's the third date, um, and I didn't know how to bring it up so all, this whole walk home it's a 20 minute walk I'm in my brain being like how do I bring this up how do I bring this up and then he goes oh my I trip and he catches me and he was I was like oh I'm so clumsy um, I'm dyspraxic and he was like oh my brother's dyspraxic too and I was like oh that's so strange I'm also dyslexic I've also had 15 surgeries a brain tumor function test by <laughs> a destructive to my brain in a condition conditional hydrocephalus <laughs> literally at that speed classic he t- turns to me and goes cool and we keep walking and then all I could think was wait I mentioned the surgeries I'm not sure I mentioned the scars because it sounds so silly but when you mention surgeries no one not actually consi- understands yeah. yeah and no one like relates it to scars so then once we were in my bedroom I literally went to him and I went by the way you know those surgeries they come with scars <laughs> Oh my god But the funny thing is Thanks for the follow up Yeah (laughs) And I wrote about it In my book And I was like As much as it's Like embarrassing And also I didn't really want My parents to read About these experiences We have to show How clumsy it is When Uh you first Start talking about it And it's not going To be the perfect Conversation And it was the conversations that followed that with my friends where they were like, you do realise you don't have to give a disclaimer about your body before you show your body. This is
0: what I wanted to say to you because I've got uh, quite a lot of scars on my body. So I've got like my regular burns and skin grafts, but things like my groin... um, they took away all the skin on my groin to build my lids Yeah. so I've got quite a lot of surgical scars there I've got scars on my back and my bum where my skin was removed and put on my face and I when I first began to be intimate again I did say I like preempted it yeah. and was like just to let you know like you've got all these scars like here and here and I was thinking if you had cellulite or varicose veins yeah. you would not flag that on date five and be like just to let you know there's thread veins on my ankles yeah. would you? like? But it's
1: almost like that saying of like say it before the bully does so yeah. Yeah. Kind of in my head, I was like, I need to warn them so that they can leave before I'm naked and then they walk out halfway through. Yeah. But I actually just realized it's all about insecurity. And now my surgeries tend to come up before yeah. my scars come up, just in terms of the fact that my job naturally brings a up that figure, conversation so, yeah. yeah um and i don't give it as a disclaimer because i just don't think you're getting into a relationship with a body and mm. i don't see it that way but it's all of that kind of flops away once you actually get okay with having the conversation yeah. around the surgeries i think that was the hardest part was i always thought it was about the scars but i was actually like to say uh like to tell the memories that happened in Mm-hmm. hospital is actually the hardest, the part. hardest part
0: to relive that yeah. yeah see I always used to like preempt it thinking I was like stopping rejection yeah and then I was like no I'm just starting off on an apologetic foot of apologizing for being myself
1: yeah. and they like what's the point in that I don't exactly wanna... and that's the part where I was like you know what I'm just going to try a few times not mentioning it and most don't I don't want to say don't notice but like they don't mention it. You talk about kind of just living your life anyway and
0: and one of the things I really admired about you recently um, is you were talking about the Well, I was going to say under-representation, but no representation of plus-size women in the Asian community. Yeah. And one thing I noticed about you on your page is if you want something or you want something to happen, you don't wait (laughs) for it to come to you. You don't wish and say, oh, this isn't happening. You actually go and do it. And that's what you did in a recent photo shoot.
1: Well, so what tends to happen is I get worked up about something and then I, like, rant about it for a week and then I get to a point where I'm, like, talking to my agent or something and I'm like, I need to do something about it. And he was like, go do it. (laughs) But that's
0: the activist in you. Yeah, yeah.
1: And so I think it was the fact that it was actually three months of me talking to fashion brands. And I've worked with a lot of fashion brands over the last five years. And it was just the best way I could describe it was a lot of slammed doors in my face. And like, even when why I was, is this? I think because there's not enough noise around it. I think Mm -hmm. when we've talked about other races, there's been enough noise around it. They can't avoid it without getting backlash for not doing it. Mm -hmm. They've been able to do this, the lack of Asian representation in all industries, without any backlash. Like, the fact that The Crazy Rich Asians was the first movie in 25 years (laughs) with an all-Asian cast, like... Why that was able to go that long is because there was no backlash in the last twenty five years mm-hmm. that there, this hasn't existed. Um, I and just realised we haven't even said where you're from for people oh, listening. But I uh, yeah, just I'm think this is a
0: random like topic. half
1: British and I'm half Chinese. Yeah, and I grew up in Hong Kong, so it it was that, and it was also the reason why I focused on the plus size thing was because I grew up in Hong Kong where. I literally had, my mum had to make my clothes and I'm a size 20, but back then I was a size 16. So Mm -hmm. I should have been able to find clothes. Mm. At my size, I should still be able to find clothes. But still, like, I wasn't even plus size Mm -hmm. throughout my childhood and I still couldn't find clothes. So the fact that there's a stereotype that all Asian women are petite and small. Mm -hmm. And there really is. That's not just you saying that, like. And also the fact that, like, even when I released the campaign, they were like, no, but they are. That is, like, it's not just a stereotype. They are. You you guys are just the exception. I'm like, no. So that was the feedback? Well, that was was a few comments. And, like, I mean, it went so global that it was inevitably going to get some negative comments. But the whole thing that... I wanted to do was make people notice it and Mm. I was like we're not even at the point of changing it is what I realised around the fashion brands because I was like I want you to start noticing it Um, and so I just started being a bit of a nuisance to all these fashion brands but then it got to a point where I was like they're not doing anything so I can keep talking about it but I don't like bang my head against the wall. So. Well,
0: I hope that you never stop. Um, yeah. I think you're helping so many people you've never met, you know, so many younger youths, people in hospital, anyone with, well, I was going to say anyone with a journey, but we're, we're all on that cliche kind of journey, aren't we? And yeah. I really hope that there's more books in you and that you publish uh, more books because I will definitely yeah. be buying them. <laughs> um, and thank you for coming on the podcast because I feel that you're very unique. Uh, we haven't had a guest like you. Um, yeah and just from a selfish point of view I got to sit down with you and talk to you so yeah thank you and I I guess it isn't always easy to share every aspect of your life so a gratitude to you for sharing it
1: thanks for having me on and thanks for being
0: (laughs) the pioneer in all of this no not at all it's all of us together as a movement so yeah thank you thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials.